The real expertise on how to develop secure, interoperable, advanced comms networks is with the experts who are actually building and deploying them. It is the week of December 7th, and welcome to episode 54 of Fault Lines, the National Security Institute's podcast that explores the disagreements between the political left and right on issues of national security and foreign policy. This week, we have NSI Senior Fellow Lester Munson doing a deep dive with Megan Brown, NSI Senior Fellow and Partner at Wiley Ryan's Telecom, Media, and Technology, and Privacy and Cybersecurity Practices. Megan recently wrote a report for NSI focused on standards development organizations in 5G and how the United States should engage with them to promote innovation. Megan, thanks for joining us. Happy to be here. Tell us a little bit about your day job and how it relates to emerging tech. So I'm a partner at Wiley Ryan in our cyber and data governance practice and in our telecom and technology practices. So I work with companies and industries on, you know, helping them get products to market, build compliance plans, and also affect federal policy and sometimes state policy that affects innovators like export controls and, of course, new scrutiny of 5G, which seems to be the buzzword of the day in Washington. All right, let's get into the report you wrote for NSI. What is a standards development organization? Okay, so an SDO is a group, often international, of experts, often sort of engineers and the real subject matter experts that come together to solve a technical problem or promote some sort of standards approach to technology that will promote consistency and uniformity. And there's SDOs for everything from fire codes to food safety to website accessibility standards to telecom equipment. And what they do is they create voluntary consensus standards. That's sort of the buzzword in the U.S. SDO approach using procedures that promote consensus, that are open, that are balanced, and they're usually accredited by the American National Standards Institute, which is sort of the policeman for all of the standards bodies to make sure they're sort of playing by the same rules. Who are the people who actually participate in the SDOs? Are they government? Are they private sector? Who are they? It really depends. It can be academics. It can be industry experts that are on staff at major companies like their engineers or their science folks, R&D. It can be sort of folks from the measurement and testing bodies. There's a whole segment of the global economy that verifies compliance with standards. And so it might be those guys from, say, underwriters labs. There can be government experts that participate from sector-specific agencies like the FDA or the Environmental Protection Agency or the Federal Communications Commission. And we frequently see folks from the National Institute of Standards and Technology, which is a non-regulatory body within the Department of Commerce. So it really does vary, but they can be large in terms of the number of members and participants. And these are folks whose companies have decided to resource them to back pre-COVID to travel to global destinations to all get together and meet or do it virtually to pound out some, you know, sometimes very technical stuff. And how does the U.S. government interact as a government, as a matter of policy with these SDOs? In several ways, and it depends. And I should say there are literally thousands of SDOs and not all of them rise to the level of the attention of the United States government. U.S. policy has for decades promoted standards development organizations, recognizing that the government can't figure everything out. And there's going to be a lot of places where it effectively makes more sense to outsource some of the technology decisions to the true experts. And and so there's a concept called incorporation by reference that a lot of uh, legal scholars look at and say, when is it okay 
for the government to basically say, uh, you know what, the International Building Code Group is going to set building codes and to comply with federal law, you comply with what they say. But the U.S. government has a lot of different ways to interact with these SDOs. Some agencies will send observers or have actual representatives. That's sort of the, the NIST model. The FCC sometimes does that. So there's several different ways. Now, there are some SDOs that are part of sort of formal intergovernmental operations, such as the International Telecommunications Union, which is part of the United Nations. And there, the United States government is actually the player because they're the treaty signer that goes and negotiates at the conventions and uh, conferences every year. So lots of different ways, some more ad hoc than others. I think it's a sleeper issue for some in Congress that they haven't really got their heads around how the different agencies play in all of these different SDOs that are, you know, I didn't know about SDOs until maybe 10 or 15 years ago when I got involved in cybersecurity and, and technology uh, regulation. So lots of different ways the government deals with this. And what are the SDOs that are most critical for emerging communications technology? So the, the big one is 3GPP, which is sort of a weird acronym for third generation partnership project, but it's sort of the go-to. And they're the global standards body that's putting forward, you know, the actual standards for interoperability of radio communications, the design of communications networks of the future, standards for how the core network and the radio network will interact, but other important standards organizations in future communications technologies. And this is I'm sorry, this is where we get into acronym soup. It's there's IEEE, which is the Institute of Electrical and Electronics Engineers. There's IETF, the Internet Engineering Task Force, and several others that I'm not going to bore your listeners with. Um, but the, suffice it to say, I think 3GPP is the, the lead one at this point. And how would you characterize the role of Chinese companies in SDOs? So looking at the private SDOs or these voluntary consensus SDOs of the kind I just mentioned, you know, the Chinese companies are involved and engaged, as are other major players in other relevant sectors. These Chinese companies have huge market share. They're creating lots of products and services. They serve billions of customers. And so they're there. And, you know, in 3GPP, they do the same things that U.S., Korean, Japanese, and European companies do. They make contributions, they sit on committees, they chair working groups, and they share technical inputs. For 3GPP, there's about 600 global members, and they feed up through what are called organizational partners. And so Huawei's active in its regional SDO and at 3GPP, as one would expect from a huge dominant telecom carrier provider and some of the other ones, you know, they participate, all the Chinese companies that are players there, China Mobile, et cetera, they participate in global meetings of the working groups alongside AT&T, Ericsson, Nokia, and sort of the cast of characters you would expect. And what about the role of the Chinese government itself, the Chinese Communist Party? Yeah, I mean, you know, the Chinese government has made no secret of its desire to achieve technical dominance in emerging technologies and, and key technologies, including 5G. So, you know, they're keenly interested in the work of 3GPP and other SDOs. You know, there are observer members and other kinds of members the U.S. government does observe and participate to some degree at 3GPP. The Chinese government formally does that as well. But also, we all know Chinese companies often have a fundamentally different relationship with their government than companies in most other countries. So I suppose observers could see Chinese companies 
SDO participation as an extension of their government and thus the Chinese Communist Party as well. Does Huawei, which I believe is the world's largest cell phone maker, does Huawei have a particularly influential role in 3GPP or other SDOs? I mean, I would say it has a very influential role, just like some the other giant successful companies do. Um, Huawei is a, a large manufacturer of not just cell phones, but network equipment. They also are a you know managed service provider within China and, and parts of Asia. So you know they're a big deal. They have enormous market share. So yes, they play a role, as do the Chinese telecoms, China Unicom, China Mobile, etc. This is not a surprise, but from the U.S. industry participants that I speak with, it's not an outsized or inappropriate role. Um, there's certainly a lot of skepticism about it in the part of some U.S. policymakers, but they seem to participate. They generate a lot of contributions. Everyone acknowledges they're very active in these SDOs. So there is, of course, very heightened concern among policymakers about Huawei because of its very close relationship to the Chinese government. We've seen a lot of initiatives just in the last couple of years uh, from the Hill, from the Trump administration that are directly related to that concern. Do you think the U.S. government should be taking a more active role in thwarting what Huawei is doing at SDOs? I think that the word in your question that hangs me up is thwarting, right? And with that verb, I would say no. I don't think the U.S. government's role is to thwart particular companies. But if policymakers fear that a company or a country is having or poised to have an undue influence, I would say a, a key solution is not to try and exclude them. Um, this will just fragment standards. It can create sort of a balkanized approach to technology that keeps um, the companies we like, perhaps, from getting uh, more market share and from being competitive. In fact, dueling standards was something that plagued the global telecom industry for a long time in past generations of telecom. So 3GPP and these standards efforts were an effort to say, let's get everybody on the same page, right? Bring everybody in so that our phones work across the world and so that networks can hand off traffic. All that makes a lot of sense. So from my perspective, the government should take an interest in this activity and should educate itself about what's going on. Um, and they should try and ensure that these transparent and industry-led groups remain that way, push back against getting them infected with politics. Um, and hopefully, if you broaden the tent of participants and get more U.S. companies, Western allied companies that are going and, and participating in these groups, then you can be confident that the best contributions are going to emerge from a, a balanced and transparent process. That's why U.S. policy promotes open and transparent SDO activity. So some hawkish policymakers are now calling for a much more activist U.S. government role in tech issues, you know, kind of pulling back from just the Huawei issue. Some are even saying the U.S. government should take ownership stakes in companies like Ericsson or Nokia, because we need to be more, in a way, more like the Chinese government, have more direct U.S. government participation in these emerging technologies writ large. What are your concerns about that? I mean, so the way you articulated it sounds like, and I do think some policymakers are, are falling into this, you sort of want to beat them at their own game, so to speak. And I think just based on the numbers, say, of Chinese government R&D support, I don't know that we're ever going to be able to beat them at their own game if that's, if that's how we want to think about it. I think 
buying a 5G network or building a DOD 5G network is not to me an innovation forward approach. I don't trust, you know, the, the government to build a 5G network. You know, we have several carriers that are racing in the United States to build and improve 5G. I don't know that uh, an organization as enormous and bureaucratic as the DOD is going to be the place to foment great innovation like that. Um, but I think, you know, there's certainly a role for the U.S. government to play in trying to get more people active in these activities. But I think, you know, some of the proposals I've seen call for DOD or others to sort of actively participate in 3GPP, for example. And I have some concerns about that. One, that that kind of increased U.S. government qua government participation may legitimize and encourage more direct meddling by other governments, quite frankly. Second, I think that kind of direct government participation is going to pull what were previously policy neutral bodies into inherently political issues and value judgments, whether it's on encryption policy or the proper use of surveillance or privacy values. You know, for instance, the ability of a network to accommodate lawful intercept is something that is a technical question. The policy question of when lawful intercept should happen is a totally different beast that isn't going to be decided by, say, a 3GPP. That's a value question. And so I think if the government has a seat at that table, you're going to necessarily bring in policy issues that are going to muddy the waters. And third, there are some terrifically smart government people who I think can add a lot of value in these discussions. But in a place like 3GPP and these inherently technical bodies, the real expertise on how to develop secure, interoperable, advanced comms networks is with the experts who are actually building and deploying them. Um, and so there's a role for the government to understand that, to have visibility into that. Um, the U.S. government has a lot of capacity to convene and encourage and share information, but I don't relish the thought of the government sort of inserting itself in a muscular way into steering any of these activities. So if we're going to rely on the private sector and, and American companies to kind of carry the, the banner of openness, transparency, accountability, privacy concerns, do you think we can rely on big tech companies like Facebook and Google to do things that will be for the benefit of the American people? I think, yes, when we're talking about these SDO type activities, I think more can be done to make sure we're protecting that openness and transparency. As I said, that's a hallmark of federal policy vis-a-vis -vis SDOs. And I think that's something we really need to champion. I think the leaders in SDOs for emerging tech include not just Google, but really, I mean, even more so than, than the Googles of the world, you know, global manufacturers and service providers. But we really should be looking you know, to expand that to include a broader innovation base. I think there's a narrow set of U.S. companies who have the wherewithal to send people to Geneva or Sri Lanka, where these conferences are, if we resume such conferences after the pandemic, but to dedicate full-time resources to participating in these you know, that's a resource intensive uh, commitment. And I think we need to think about how to get more U.S. companies and more Western allied companies to want to do that. What's your assessment of uh, the technical expertise in the U.S. government at places like defense, commerce and the State Department? Ooh, this, this is a dangerous question. I certainly don't want to um, <laughs> cast dispersions on the technical expertise. I think it is okay. I think each of those knows their use cases. DOD, for example, knows how to set up comms for the warfighter, but they don't 
I don't know that they are the best position to build an international communications network, for example. State Department knows the ITU and does a fabulous job there with our ambassador that is dedicated to those issues, but they rely on industry experts to help it develop positions on, say, the rules for international spectrum management, right? Commerce has the National Institute of Standards and Technology. They have some fabulous folks, but again, they're not building this technology and these networks. Um, So I think, you know, a little bit of regulatory humility is called for, and these issues, particularly 5G, need to remain a private sector-led effort. So in your report, you called for a federal advisory committee to help guide U.S. government interactions with SDOs. Tell us what that would look like and the kind of people you see as members of that committee. I think a federal advisory committee in this space, from what I have in mind, would be a true advisor to the key stakeholders that care, like you mentioned, DOD, state, commerce, really to let them know what is going on with the SDOs, where they should prioritize, where they should be monitoring. And I think in terms of the folks you would see as members, I think you'd have to lean heavily on the private sector here and really try and get buy-in from the folks whose economic interests are so at stake in these SDOs. You know, I think this idea is not brand new. There's certainly calls in Congress for various interagency working groups on standards, but I think many of them take as a given that there's an appropriate role for the government in being more directive. And I think the, the federal government needs to sort of be able to identify what it doesn't know and lean on the private sector to really understand what is happening here? Is there a there there that we need to be concerned about? And where can we help, right? I'm from the government and I'm here to help, whether it's R&D tax credits or other things the government can do to make in involvement in these bodies easier and more of a no-brainer for companies. I think that's a huge value add for the government and that a FACA organization, Federal Advisory Committee Act organization, could help guide the Secretary of State or the Secretary of Commerce on what's going to be a useful expenditure of federal resources and how to support the private sector. And I think that's something that's been missing from discussions about SDOs. And part of it is born of, I think, a lack of understanding of how some of these SDOs really work in the nuts and bolts day to day. So how do we make sure that the interests and the expertise of small cutting edge companies, like you said, the ones that maybe couldn't afford to send someone to Sri Lanka for a couple of weeks, how do we make sure they're represented in this effort? I think that's a really tough one because the small companies aren't going to have the ability to say, take one of their super smart engineers who's trying to build product and get the business going to something that sounds esoteric, like a 3GPP technical service committee working group. But I think that's where the government can be that facilitator, right? Sometimes even tracking down the work of these SDOs is a real bear. And it would perhaps be helpful if state or someone, maybe NIST, put in one place some of the ongoing activities and translated it in some way to the private sector, to the innovation base. One other thing that I think they can do, and this has come up in suggestions to the government about sort of information sharing and supply chain security, is really reach out to some of the information sharing and analysis centers and the trade associations who have that reach into the private sector to say, this is what's going on. This is what we're concerned about. Here's how you can plug in right? And try and be that connector. Um, There's certain parts of the Commerce Department that do that really well. And I think that's a model for standards work that could be really helpful to try and get some of these 
smaller companies represented, even if they don't have the ability to say, take half of a full-time employee and, and put them on this. What's your hot take on the Cyber Solarium report? Oof. Well, to be very blunt, I think it could have used a lot more input from the private sector. I know they had one commissioner from the private sector. Personally, I don't think that was enough. And I think some of the provisions we're seeing that have made their way into the National Defense Authorization Act reflect a bit of, you know, not enough kicking the tires on some of these ideas. And we haven't yet seen manifest their really aggressive recommendations vis-a-vis the private sector, whether it's global sort of national IoT law and some of those more aggressive regulatory uh, activities like certifications and labeling for IoT. So I think there's a lot more homework that needs to be done. And I wish the National Defense Authorization Act language to reauthorize them put a few more expectations and requirements on them with respect to inputs, processes, and transparency. Because I don't love this idea of, of legislation that gets drafted, popped over to the Armed Services Committee, slapped in the NDAA, and we're sort of done. Yeah, lawmaking is just way too easy, isn't it? Oh, yes. You know, <laughs> Apparently, only when you're talking about the National Defense Authorization Act, everybody else just yeah. gives up, and then yeah, you think, a- throw it in the NDAA. That's right. It's a real problem. Grant, over to you for our last question or two for our guest today. I, of course, loved your paper, partially because I helped put it out. But I still have two questions for you. And the first is, when will we know if China has an undue influence over standards development organizations? No, great question. Maybe you'll think I'm a little captured here, but I think we'll know or we'll have good evidence that you know, the SDO process has been bastardized by foreign company influence when, you know, U.S. companies who have a a huge stake in this show up and say, we have a problem, right? And listen, that, that day may come. I don't know. I'm not in all those meetings, so we shall see. But I think we, you know, right now we have a fair bit of, you know, conjecture and worry and not enough understanding of how the processes work. For example, there's a lot of focus on what are called contributions to 3GPP and this fear that because uh, Huawei and Chinese companies have the majority or a large number of, quote, contributions, they're sort of running the table. When you look at some of the research, and I touch on this in my paper, you know, there's a lot of debate about whether a contribution is really meaningful at all because there's no quality control on them and they may be moving to meet quotas that they have regardless of the quality of the contribution. So I think that's why I think um, having a better dialogue with the U.S. companies and the Western companies that are participating to get their real sense of things on the ground in these releases to know whether, I mean, we're well into 5G standards. And I don't, I've not heard from the U.S. operator community, for example, that there's a, a balance. Um, and one point, I guess, Grant, on, you know, the, the Senator Cotton question, BIS, the Bureau of Industry Security at Commerce, did try in a way to really choke Huawei's access off by imposing export controls. And and what they had to do was come back and recalibrate that because the U.S. private sector came in and said, hey, 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 you are making it very difficult for us to participate in global standards work, which is vital. And so BIS corrected that because they understood that, while we don't want our technology being exported to Huawei for its use. We've got to protect the ability to all get together and talk about technology without making the U.S. have to sit on the sidelines, if that makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. And so I think my second question is, 
is 5G unique in that it doesn't really deal with kind of the nitty gritty policy problems of the ethics of AI or how to store data? Or is this an example of how we should treat many, if not most of the other standards development organizations in the tech space? You know, that's a that's a really good question. I don't want to buy into the idea that sort of 5G is this unicorn of technology or policy. It is obviously super important and it's going to be, you know, if you read all the marketing literature, it's game changing for everything from connected health to DOD's mission to connected vehicles, right? It's it's a big deal. Um, but I don't have a great way to compare it to maybe some of the other sectors that are going to be experiencing similarly foundational shifts that are being addressed in standards work. I mean, there are going to be adjacent standards efforts relating to like handset design and things like that that are important that are going to be addressed in part by 3GPP. But I don't I don't know that we need to treat 5G as sort of this singularly special unicorn proceeding if that's where you were sort of going, that, you know, we should potentially upend some of our uh, assumptions and policies because it's 5G at issue here. I think the same bedrock United States policy approaches to letting the market drive technology, innovation, having interoperability, engaging globally, projecting American innovation, and those kinds of things will, will redound to our economic security and smart policy. And I don't think because 5G is important, we should waver from that commitment. Great. Megan, thanks for joining us. This was a great conversation. Thanks for having me. This was really fun. That's a wrap. As always, Fault Lines is produced by the National Security Institute. Find out more about the Institute and upcoming events at nationalsecurity.gmu.edu. If you have any topics you'd like us to cover in the future, send us an email at nsi.gmu.edu or tweet us at masonnatsec. If you like what we're doing here, please be sure to rate, review, and subscribe so that more people can find our show. We'd like to thank Claude Jennings for editing and Lester Munson for hosting. And Grant Haver for producing and directing. Join us next Next week for another provocative conversation and further analysis of national security's fault lines.